You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. So we're going to get straight into it. Um, This book is called Crucial Conversations. And uh, we're going to chapter one. And it starts off with with, uh, a quote from George Bernard Shaw. The single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. So chapter one, what's a crucial conversation and who cares? When people first hear the term crucial conversation, many conjure up images of presidents, emperors, and prime ministers seated around a massive table while they debate the future. Although it's true that such discussions have a wide-sweeping impact, they're not the only kind we have in mind. Crucial conversations happen to everyone. They're the daily conversations that reshape your life. Now, What makes one of your conversations crucial as opposed to plain vanilla? First, opinions vary. For example, you're talking with your boss about a possible promotion. She thinks you're not ready. You think you are. Second, stakes are high. You're in a meeting with four coworkers and you're you're trying to pick a new marketing strategy. You've got to do something different or your company's in trouble. Third, emotions run strong. You're in the middle of a casual discussion with your spouse and he or she brings up an ugly incident that took place at yesterday's neighborhood party. Apparently, not only did you flirt with someone at the party, but according to your spouse, you were practically making out. You don't remember flirting. You simply remember being polite and friendly. Your spouse walks off in a huff. (laughs) Gee, I'd like to be in the room when that happens. I mean, (laughs) I'm trying to work out how... uh, being polite and friendly can be confused with practically making out. Um, and speaking of the party, at one point during the evening, you found yourself making small talk with a somewhat crotchety and colorful neighbor from an adjoining apartment. One minute he's telling you all about his shrinking kidneys, the next he's complaining about the smell of your previous night's dinner wafting through his vent. I'm allergic to ginger, you know, he grouses. From that moment on, you end up in a heated debate over whether your right to stir-fry trumps the fact that smelling the spice makes his ears sweat. Not your most diplomatic moment. It escalates to shouting, and the neighbor finishes by threatening you with a culinary assault lawsuit while you storm off. Emotions were really running strong. What makes these, these conversations crucial? What makes each of these conversations crucial and not simply frustrating, frightening, or annoying is that the outcome could have a huge impact on either relationships or results that affect you greatly. In each of the above cases, some element of your daily routine could be forever altered for better or for worse. Clearly, a promotion could make a big difference. Your company's success affects you and everyone you work with. Your relationship with your spouse influences every aspect of your life. Even something as trivial as a debate over cooking smells can damage your quality of life. These examples, of course, are merely the tip of an enormous and ugly iceberg of topics that can lead us into conversational disaster. 
Others include, here's the list, ending a relationship, talking to a co-worker who makes offensive comments, asking a friend to repay a loan, giving the boss feedback about her behavior, approaching a boss who's breaking his own safety or quality policies, addressing racist or sexist behavior, critiquing a colleague's work, asking a roommate to move out, resolving custody or visitation issues with an ex, dealing with a rebellious teen, talking to a team member who isn't keeping commitments, discussing problems with sexual intimacy, confronting a loved one about a substance abuse problem, talking to a colleague who's hoarding informational resources, giving an unfavorable performance review, asking in-laws to quit interfering, talking to a co-worker about a personal hygiene problem. Now, hopefully, if, you, if you're in the audience right now in Clubhouse, um, you weren't playing bingo. Hopefully, no one shouts out bingo uh, because we're all in trouble um, as well. But I, I just want to make a, a, a quick comment as well, um, which is, I think the key, the key thought here is, is immediately what I'm taking away <clears throat> is that the, the outcome is, is, is there's two parts, right? There's the actual outcome, right? Which is whatever the resolve is, but there's the actual implication of that resolve on the relationship. And that is a new point for me. You know, sometimes we're like the, the, the thing that I immediately think about is that um, sometimes you feel like you're in a lose-lose situation, right? Which is if you say nothing, it festers you, you breed resentment. But if you say something, now it's like, you know, we call it at EOS, we call it entering the danger. Now you've entered the danger, so now what? Now you feel this, this awkwardness, this weirdness, this uh, even though you may have done the right thing the right way for the right reasons at the right time, now suddenly there's just this awkwardness. So, I'm I'm kind of curious as to uh, as to how uh, it's going to resolve. And to ask the question, yes, I'm reading the book live. The idea is that every Tuesday we will meet and continue to read this book together. And you know, I'll, I'll be able to look at comments every now and then, and and maybe towards the end, depending on where we are, if there are people have questions, comments, um, <clears throat> you can come onto stage as well. These situations cause stress and strain in our lives, and one misstep in any of them could have huge consequences, but it doesn't have to be this way. If you know how to handle crucial conversations, you can effectively hold tough conversations about virtually any topic and resolve the situation, but that's not what typically happens. So now there's a little uh, figure, and you know what I'm going to do as well is... um, this is one of the advantages of certainly having, um, you know, of certainly having uh, the Discord is when they are like charts or diagrams or whatever, um, I'm going to go ahead and take photos. Um, I'm actually reading it off my Kindle, just so you know, and then I'm going to go ahead and, and post that in our Discord. Um, so it's a way of you, you know, I definitely want you to go ahead and, and join our Discord um, because as I said, that's where you know for, for sure um, you're going to be able to see all of, or, or experience, I should say, um, <clears throat> all of you know, the, the conversation. So I just posted it now. There's, a, there's um, a channel called Cafe Chat, and that's just above the Collective Cafe. No one's in the actual Discord Collective Cafe right now because most people, I guess, are here on, on Clubhouse. But I just wanted you to know. So what I've done is I've posted or pasted 
Um, it's like a dictionary definition, and it says crucial conversation. The definition is noun, a discussion between two or more people in which they hold one opposing opinions about a two high stakes issue and where three emotions run strong. So remember, two different opinions, two people, two opinions, high stakes and emotions run strong. So now you've got this kind of triad. Okay, lag time is a factor. In each of these examples, the determining factor between success and failure is the amount of time that passes between when the problem emerges and when those involved find a way to honestly and respectfully resolve it. What we're suggesting is that the greatest damage to your relationship with your in-laws is not due to their occasional interference, it's the toxic emotions and dysfunctional behavior that occurs in the absence of a forthright conversation that causes the greatest damage. Biased behavior in your workplace is a problem, but its impact is multiplied when people fail to confront discuss and resolve the behavior. It's one thing to have a boss who fails to keep her commitments. It's another to have the problem fester into gossip, mistrust, and covert resentment as it echoes through hallways rather than being frankly addressed. The real damage happens during the lag time between people seeing her weaknesses and people addressing her weaknesses. Think about relationships where the lag time between when you feel a problem and when you discuss it is short. Odds are that you would describe these relationships as characterized by trust, productivity, and intimacy. Now think about the reverse. Think about teams where it can take weeks, months, or years to honestly address the elephants in the room. What happens in the absence of candid dialogue, contention, resentment, gamesmanship, poor decisions, spotty execution, missed opportunities? At the heart of almost all chronic problems in relationships teams, organizations, and even nations are crucial conversations people either don't hold or don't hold well. Decades of research has led us to conclude that you can measure the health of relationships, teams, and organizations by measuring the lag time between when problems are identified and when they are resolved. I'm going to read that again. This one is uh, apparently 3,588 highlighters, according to my Kindle. You can measure the health of relationships, teams, and organizations by measuring the lag time between when problems are identified and when they are resolved. The only reliable path to resolving problems is to find the shortest path to effective conversation. Why the lag? How we typically handle crucial conversations. When we face crucial conversations, we have three broad options. We can avoid them. We can face them and handle them poorly, or we can face them and handle them well. That seems simple enough. Walk away from crucial conversations and suffer the consequences. Handle them poorly and suffer the consequences, or handle them well, resolve the situation, and improve the relationship. I can tell you for what it's worth that even when I think about my own relationship, even with my wife, I think about the fact that she she tends to walk away, she avoids conflict, I probably handle them poorly and get very emotional. It's the third camp that we obviously have to focus on. You know, another thing that, that I, I even think about in, in our relationship, and it's, it's we've tried, I mean, we try, because, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, everyone tries, is to, you know, the old adage, which is never go to bed angry or 
if there's something that that I've done to irritate you or piss you off or whatever, mention it on the day. Like almost kind of come up with this idea of a a 24-hour lag or 24-hour moratorium. A 24-hour moratorium that says you've got 24 hours to say what you want, get off your mind or, uh, you know, what what do they say? Speak uh, or forever hold your peace. But the reality um, is you should never hold your peace, right? Because that ends up being in, uh, in the first category. So it, it should never be speak or forever hold your peace. It should just be speak, period, right? Um, so let's carry on. That seems simple enough. Walk away from, I'm reading the previous paragraph, walk away from crucial conversations and suffer the consequences, handle them poorly and suffer the consequences or handle them well, resolve the situation and improve the relationship. I don't know, you think to yourself, given the three choices, I'll go with handling them well, but do we handle them well? When talking turns tough, do we pause, take a deep breath, announce to our inner selves, "Uh uh-oh, this discussion is crucial, I'd better pay close attention, and then trot out our best behavior? Sometimes, sometimes we boldly tackle hot topics, monitor our behavior, solve problems, and preserve relationships Sometimes we're just flat out good. But too often we fall into the other two camps. The lag time between identifying a problem and effectively resolving it grows because either we don't address it at all or we address it poorly and the problem persists. Also just want to say shout out to Henry Ching, who I see in the audience. He's just joined Clubhouse in order to to come and listen to this. So I just saw you in the audience. Glad you're here. We avoid crucial conversations. Despite the importance of crucial conversations, we often back away from them because we fear engaging will make matters worse. We become masters at avoiding tough conversations. Coworkers send emails when they should pick up the phone and talk openly. Bosses send texts rather than jumping on a video call. Family members change the subject when an issue gets too risky. We have one friend who learned... Who, who learned from a post-it note that his life partner of 17 years was leaving him. We use all kinds of tactics to dodge touchy issues. Of course, there are risks in speaking up, especially to those with more power than you. But what few of us tend to be honest with ourselves about is the alternative to taking this risk. Sorry, let me read that again. I think I read it. But what few of us tend to be honest with ourselves about is the alternative to taking this risk. When it comes to crucial conversations, you only have two choices. Number one, talk it out. Number two, act it out. If you fail to discuss issues you have with your boss, your life partner, your neighbor, or your peer, will those issues magically disappear? No. Instead, they will become the lens you see the other person through. And how this is so important. Instead, they will become the lens you see the other person through. And how you see always shows up in how you act. Your resentment will show up in how you treat the other person. For instance, you'll snap at the person, spend less time with him or her, be quicker to accuse the person of dishonesty or selfishness, or withhold information or affection. The problem will persist, and acting out your feelings instead of talking them out will add strain to an already crucial situation. The longer the lag time during which you act out your feelings rather than talk them out, 
the more damage you'll do to both relationships and results. We handle them poorly. On the flip side of avoidance, we have the problem of handling crucial conversations poorly. Often in these tough moments, we're at our absolute worst. We exaggerate, we yell, we withdraw, we say things we later regret. The sad irony of crucial conversations is that when it matters most, we tend to do our worst. Why is that? We're designed wrong. When conversations turn from routine to crucial, our instincts conspire against us. Strong emotions don't exactly prepare us to converse effectively. Countless generations of genetic shaping drives humans to react to interpersonal threats the same way we deal with physical ones. Our natural tendencies in moments that seem threatening lean toward fight or flight rather than listen and speak. Now, that whole concept, of course, has been changed over time. There's fight, there's flight, there's freeze. I think there's another one called fawn. So there are a few ways that people have spoken about that. You know, my, um, ironically, I've been known for, I think I've probably become known for being a confrontational person and, um, you know, and kind of always moving towards the conflict. But actually, my natural tendency is, is to run away, is flight. Because I'm probably, as I've got to know myself a little bit better, I'm probably what's known as an extroverted introvert. So my natural tendency is I don't like the conflict. I don't run away from, you know, I will fight for justice. I will stand up to bullies. You know, that is in my nature to, to you know, to stand up for myself or others. But when things get really tough, I want to just run away. So let's continue. For instance, consider a typical crucial conversation. Someone says something you disagree with about a topic that matters a great deal to you and your body registers the threat. Your body's instinct is to prepare prepare you for physical safety. Two tiny organs seated neatly atop your kidneys pump adrenaline, adrenaline into your bloodstream. Your brain diverts blood from activities it seems non-essential, like thoughtfully and respectfully opening a conversation, to high-priority survival tasks such as hitting and running. As the large muscles of the arms and legs get more blood, the higher-level reasoning sections of your brain gets less. As a result, you end up facing challenging conversations with the same intellectual equipment available to a rodent Your body is preparing to deal with an attacking saber-toothed tiger, not your boss, neighbor, or loved one. We're under pressure. Frequently, crucial conversations come out of nowhere, and since you're caught by surprise, you're forced to conduct an extraordinarily complex interaction in real time. No books, no coaches, and certainly no short breaks while a team of diplomats runs to your aid and pumps you full of suave ideas. What do you have to work with? The issue at hand, the other person, and a brain that's drunk on adrenaline and almost incapable of rational thought. It's little wonder we often say and do things that make perfect sense in the moment, but later on seem, well, stupid. What was I thinking, you wonder? When what you should be asking is, what part of my brain was I thinking with? 
The truth is you were trying to solve a complex interpersonal problem with a brain designed to do little more than assure your survival. You're lucky you didn't suffer, you didn't suffer a stroke. We're stumped. We don't know where to start with approaching a crucial with with approaching a crucial conversation effectively. We're making this up as we go along because few of us have seen real life models of effective communication skills. Let's say you actually planned for a tough conversation. Maybe you're even mentally rehearsed. You feel prepared and you're as cool as a cucumber. Will you succeed? Not if you haven't seen what true success looks like. Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. I love that. Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. This means that first you have to know what to practice. You're probably, you've probably had ample opportunity to see what not to do, as modeled by friends, colleagues, and yes, even your parents. In fact, you may have sworn time and you may have sworn time and again not to act the same way. You've watched your dad nod and sulk while his mother critiqued his life choices. Your mom taught you by example to respond to unkindness with biting sarcasm. And your first boss's favorite maxim, maxim was, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. At least until the person he couldn't say something nice about left the room. With no healthy models, what do you do? You do what most people do. You wing it. You piece together the words, try to make them sound non-threatening, and hope the other person agrees with your perspective right away. But since you have no real idea of how to bring up the topic safely or respond to the other person's arguments, your attempts tend to fall short and the lag time grows. We act in self-defeating ways. Sometimes in our doped-up, dumbed-down state, the strategies we choose for dealing with our crucial conversations are perfectly designed to keep us from what we actually want. We're our own worst enemies. Here's how this works. Let's say your significant other has been paying less and less attention to you. You realize he or she has a busy job, but you still would like more time together. You drop a few hints about the issue, but your loved one doesn't handle it well. You decide not to put on added pressure, so you clam up. Of course, since you're not at all since you're not all that happy with the arrangement, your displeasure now comes out through the occasional sarcastic remark. Another late night, huh? I've got Facebook friends I feel closer to. Unfortunately, and here's where the problem becomes self-defeating, the more you snip and snap, the less your loved one wants to be around you. So he or she so he or she spends less time with you. You become even more upset and the spiral continues. Your behavior is now actually creating the very thing you didn't want in the first place. You're caught in an unhealthy, self-defeating loop. I was just thinking that, by the way, as I was reading, that um, it is a vicious cycle. It is a vicious circle that ultimately by not addressing it, I mean, you know, if you're taking anything away from this, it's it's the fact that, that we are almost like... <laughs> It's like, how do you get yourself out of this? Like, I don't know if you feel like a sense of anxiety or agita from even just going through this. It's like, well, like it just gets worse and worse. How, you know, I just saw a thumbs up from Dina. How do you break the cycle? And also in your mind, you're thinking, you know, be the, you know, be the better man, be the better woman, be the better spouse. Um, And then you're thinking to yourself, you know, your negative self-talk says, well, why do I have to do it? Why should I always be the one, right, to make the first move? Why should I always be the one to take the high road? 
um, and so on and so forth. And it just gets, you know, uh, worse uh, and worse. Just um, let's, let's continue. I hope you're all enjoying this, um, the live read. Or maybe you have a roommate. Uh, we'll call him Terry. Ironically, my wife's name is Terry. Uh, we'll call him Terry, who shamelessly wears your and your other roommate's clothes without asking. In fact, one day while walking out the door, he glibly announces that he's wearing something from each of your closets. You see Taylor's pants, Scott's shirt, and even Chris's new matching shoes and sock ensemble. What of yours could he possibly be wearing? Ew. Your response quite naturally, is to badmouth Terry behind his back. That is, until one day when he overhears you belittling him to a friend. You're so embarrassed you uh, avoid being around him. And now, when you're out of the apartment, he wears your clothes, eats your food, and uses your laptop out of spite. Let's try another example. You're a woman on a project team run by a man. Over the past two months, you've noticed that when men on the team offer ideas in brainstorming meetings, he responds with good comment and a thoughtful nod. When a woman offers an idea, he rarely makes eye contact and offers a soft, okay. After the first meeting where it happened, you were curious. You had a sense that it would be helpful to call it to his attention. Still, you decided against it for fear of offending him so early in the project. After you saw the behavior again in the second meeting, you were convinced not just that it was a pattern, but that he was likely incorrigible. By the eighth time you saw the pattern, you felt hot rage shoot through your spine. He has noted your sullen seething and has decided you either don't respect him or worse, you're actively undermining his project. Rather than exploring his concerns with you, he nurses them into a full-fledged indictment. As a result, he rarely looks in your direction during meetings and takes your potentially constructive comments as personal attacks. Men, huh? In both cases, you're caught in a self-defeating loop. The more the two of you choose to continue your agitated silence, the more you both create the very behaviors the other despises. In each of these examples of unhealthy downward spirals, the stakes were moderate to high. Opinions differed and emotions ran strong. In a couple of the examples... The stakes were fairly low at first, but with time and growing emotions, the relationship soured and quality of life suffered, driving the stakes up. There is hope. So what's the solution to stepping up to these conversations and effectively resolving the situation before they drag out and grow to unmanageable levels? The answer is to gain the skills needed to successfully address and resolve these relationships through crucial conversations. When you're confident in the skills you need, you won't hesitate to step up to these conversations. You'll know that a good outcome is possible and you'll be able to create a scenario where everyone involved feels safe discussing his or her her concerns. The rest of the book is concerned with teaching you skills to achieve these positive outcomes. Now, for now, let's look at how how those skills impact every area of your life for the better. Working, this is a little uh, box, and I think it's a video, um, but it says, um, because there's a little like YouTube type thing, it says working through divorce. Uh, the skills you'll learn in the book will help you approach some of the most pivotal moments in your life. Co-author Emily Gregory relied on these skills in the face of a life-changing decision 
and they made all the difference. View her story in the video, Working Through Divorce, and learn about the power of crucial conversation skills at crucialconversations.com. The research, how crucial conversation skills improve your life. Strong relationships, careers, organizations, and communities all draw from the same source of power, the ability to talk openly about high-stakes, emotional, controversial topics. The following is a small sampling of the decades of research that brought us to this important insight. Increase your influence. Could the ability to master crucial conversations help your career? Absolutely. In a series of studies across 17 organizations, we identified thousands of what we call opinion leaders. We'll cover more on what this term means in the next chapter. For now, just know that these were individuals who were admired by peers and bosses alike for their competence and insight. One of the most commonly cited skills people associated with them was their ability to raise emotionally and politically risky issues in a way that others couldn't. Colleagues envied their ability to speak truth to those in power. When people weren't sure how to let the, uh, those in upper management know that they were out of touch with reality, more often than not, it was these skillful women and men who shrank the lag time. We've all seen people hurting their careers by ineffectively discussing tough issues. You may have done it yourself. Fed up with a lengthy and unhealthy pattern of behavior, you finally speak out. But a bit too abruptly, oops. Or maybe an issue becomes so hot that as your peers twitch and fidget themselves into a quivering mass of potential stroke victims, you decide to say nothing. It's not a pretty uh, discussion, but somebody has to have the guts to keep the boss from doing something stupid. Gulp. By the way, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking there is so much uh, passive aggressiveness that happens in life and in business. And I'm actually very curious how this book is going to address that, which is, and, and I know for, you know, for, for me in, in my life, I, I mean, I, I, rem, I know that sometimes what I do is I don't say something and then it just like, it just like verbal diarrhea, just like explodes out of me and, and it's awful. And it's just like, you know, it's, it's, and I'm out of control. So like even in that meeting, I don't say anything, I don't say anything, and then it just, just you know, just as I said, like I explode. Um, so I'm very curious um, how this is uh, going to um, unfold. Without realizing it, from the time we are three or four years old, most of us come to the dangerous conclusion that we often have to choose between telling the truth and keeping a friend. Lag time becomes a way of life as we procrastinate, putting off conversations that might otherwise lead to resolution and stronger relationships. Instead, we build resentment and alienation as we act out rather than talk out our concerns. People who routinely hold crucial conversations and hold them well are able to express controversial and even riskier opinions in a way that gets heard. Their bosses, peers, and direct reports listen without becoming defensive or angry. Time and again, we've watched opinion leaders find ways to both tell the truth and keep relationships. We marveled as we watched them step up to conversations in ways that actually made working relationships stronger. We discovered that the only way to really strengthen relationships is through the truth, not around it. Now, that is a 
crucial point, right? The only way to strengthen relationships is through truth, not around it. What about your career? Are there crucial conversations that you're not holding or not holding well? Is this undermining your influence? And more importantly, would your career take a step forward if you could improve how you're dealing with these conversations? Improve your organization. Is it possible that an organization's performance could hang on something as soft and gushy as how individuals deal with crucial conversations? Study after study suggests that the answer is yes. We began our work 30 years ago looking for what we call crucial moments. We wondered, are there a handful of moments when someone's actions disproportionately affect key performance indicators? And if so, what are those moments and how should we act when they occur? Interesting, this concept of crucial moments. It was that search that led us to crucial conversations. We found that more often than not, the world changes when people have to deal with, very, with a very risky issue and either do it poorly or do it well. For example, silence kills. A doctor is getting ready to insert a central IV line into a patient but fails to put on the proper gloves, gown, and mask to ensure the procedure is done as safely as possible. After the nurse reminds the doctor of the proper protections, the doctor ignores her comments and begins the insertion. In a study of over 7,000 doctors and nurses, we found caregivers face this crucial moment all the time. In fact, 84% of respondents said that they regularly see people taking shortcuts, exhibiting incompetence, or breaking rules. And that's not the problem. The real problem is that those who observe deviations or infractions say nothing. Across the world, we found that the odds of a nurse speaking up in this crucial moment are less than 1 in 12. The odds of doctors stepping up to similar crucial conversations aren't much better. And when they don't speak up, when they don't hold an effective crucial conversation, it imparts critical results like patient safety, nursing turnover, physician satisfaction, and nursing productivity. So this is Silence Kills. Um, we're going to move to Silence Fails, but immediately I had two thoughts. Uh, the, the two thoughts that jumped in my mind is, you know, often in a situation, imagine you're, this is not really a crucial conversation, but imagine you're actually sitting um, opposite someone and they've got, um, you know, schmutz on their on the side of their uh, their 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 mouth. You know, they've just been eating or something like that. Or you know, what about um, you know? And, and excuse being like kind of graphic. What if they've got like you know a little booger or something like that? And they could be a stranger and they could be someone you know very well. Like, do you say anything? Do you just kind of like say, "I'm gonna," you know, like I'm gonna. You are essentially speaking up, you know, at the risk of embarrassing them. Not that you're trying to embarrass them, but you're actually trying to save them from a more embarrassing situation. Um, the other thing that that jumps out at me here is the fact that, you know, often when you say something to someone, you know, it is going to be embarrassing because they are doing something wrong. But you shouldn't feel bad about it. They're the ones who feels bad. They're the ones who feel bad. They're the ones who in their embarrassment, actually can take it out on you. But that's not on you, that's on them. So the point being here is you, sh I mean, you know, I'm assuming silence kills, silence fails. You've got to speak up. You have to speak up. 
Because, you know, if they're going to be the smaller person, if they're going to be the person that ultimately is going to take it out on you, or, uh, you know, and, and this was the story, you know, of the woman in the meeting who didn't say anything initially, um, for many reasons, by the way. You know, there's a lot of sexism um, in, in the workplace. We all know this. And that might have been, probably was a huge part of the motivation. But if the other person can't handle, and I'm sure this will be addressed in the book, if that other person can't handle the crucial conversation, well, that's on them, surely. This is a question I would definitely want to ask the authors. And by the way, for those of you that don't know me or a little bit of background, I have a talk show called Joseph Jaffe is Not Famous. And you know, one of the advantages is, because uh, I'm not famous, but my next guest is, is that I go out and can go out to the author's and bring them on the show. And I've had many, many authors on my show. I've had 600 guests on my show, like Dan Pink and Tom Peters, uh, Carol Baskin, Jamal Mashburn, etc. So at some point, I'm actually going to reach out. And, uh, and you know, so like in, in my mind, I'm already like preparing my own little list, right? Passive aggressiveness, um, and how do you kind of eradicate that culture in the workplace? But also what happens when the person who's on the receiving end of this crucial conversation um, is is kind of you know the one who acts smaller. Um, I'm also just kind of noting in my mind, a little mental note here, that it's not really a conversation if you just tell someone something, right? That's not a conversation. That's just a probably a crucial moment. So I'm thinking maybe that's the moment. But until the other person is involved and responds, it's not a conversation, is it? All right, so silence kills. Now we move to silence fails. When it comes to the corporate world, the most common complaint of executives and managers is that their people work in silos. They're great at tasks they can't handle entirely. They are great at tasks they can handle entirely within their team. Unfortunately, close to 80% of the projects that require cross-functional cooperation cost far more than expected, produce less than hoped for, and run significantly over budget. We wondered why. So we studied over 2,200 projects and programs that had been rolled out at hundreds of organizations worldwide. The findings were stunning. You can predict months or years in advance with nearly 90% accuracy which projects will fail. As uh, Keanu Reeves would say, whoa. The predictor, that was just me, by the way, that wasn't in the book. Uh, The predictor of success or failure was whether people could hold specific, relevant crucial conversations. For example, could they speak up if they thought the scope and schedule were unrealistic? Or did they go silent when a cross-functional team member began slacking off? Or even more tricky, what should they do when an executive failed to provide leadership for for their effort? In most organizations we studied, employees fell silent when these crucial moments hit. Fortunately, in those organizations where people were able to candidly and effectively speak up about these concerns, the projects were less than half as likely to fail. When a project failed, problems showed up in key performance indicators such as spiraling costs, late delivery times, and low morale, but our research showed that the underlying cause was the unwillingness or inability to speak up at crucial moments. Other studies we've conducted show that companies with employees who are skilled at crucial conversations, wow, this is a good list, 
respond five times faster to financial downturns, and make budget adjustments far more intelligently than less skilled peers, are two-thirds more likely to avoid injury and death due to unsafe conditions, save, out, save over $1,500 and an eight-hour workday for every crucial conversation employees hold rather than avoid. Wow. I'm going to repeat that one again. Save over $1,500 and an eight-hour workday for every crucial conversation employees hold rather than avoid. Substantially increase trust and reduce transaction costs in virtual work teams. Those who can't handle their crucial conversations suffer through backstabbing, gossip, undermining, passive aggression, etc. Up to three times more often in virtual teams than in co-located teams. So I'll read that again just because of the parentheses. Those who can't handle their crucial conversations suffer up to three times more often in virtual teams than co-located teams. Obviously, that is a huge data point because now of this hybrid and work-from-home reality post-COVID. Influence change in colleagues who are bullying, conniving, dishonest, or incompetent. When over 4,000 respondents were asked, 93% of them said that in their organizations, people like this are almost untouchable, staying in their position four years or longer without being held accountable. So this is, this is super interesting. I want to read this again. Other studies, and I'm going to go back to the top, other studies we've conducted show that companies with employees who are skilled at crucial conversations, now the point is influence change in colleagues who are bullying, conniving, dishonest, or incompetent. So I'm assuming that what this really means is these people are dealt with. It, it wasn't clear to me initially, but I think that's what it means here, right? Which is because in companies where, you know, where this, um, this behavior is, is, um, un, is not addressed and these people are not held accountable, they become untouchable because they are political, you know, demons, if you will. Most leaders get it wrong. They think that organizational productivity and performance are simply about policies, processes, structures, or systems. So when their software product doesn't ship on time, they benchmark others' development processes. Or when productivity flags, they tweak their performance management system. When teams aren't cooperating, they, they restructure. Our research shows that these, team, these types of non-human changes fail more often than they succeed. That's because the real problem lies not in implementing a new process, but in getting people to hold one another accountable to the process. That's a critical point here. It's not, process is important. You know, at EOS, it's, you know, I, I think about this. There are six key components, vision, people, data, issues, process, and traction. So what you're seeing here is the interaction between people and process and issues through traction, which is the ability to meet on a weekly basis in the form of the L10 meeting. You can just see how it all uh, comes together. I'll repeat that again. That's because the real problem lies not in implementing a new process, but in getting people to hold one another accountable to the process. And that requires crucial conversation skills. In the worst companies, poor performers are first ignored and then transferred. In good companies, bosses eventually deal with problems. In the best companies, 
Everyone holds everyone else accountable, regardless of level or position. The path to high productivity passes not through a static system, but through face-to-face conversations. So what about you? Is your organization stuck in its progress towards some important goal? What is the typical lag time in your organization between identifying and discussing politically or emotionally risky issues? Do people step up to or walk away from crucial conversations? Could you take a big step forward by shrinking your typical lag time? Strengthen your relationships. Could failed crucial conversations lead to failed relationships? When you ask the average person what causes couples to break up, he or she usually suggests that it's due to differences of opinion. You know, people have different preferences about managing their finances, spicing up their love lives, or rearing their children. In truth, everyone argues about important issues, but not everyone splits up. It's how you argue that matters. For example, when psychologist Howard Markman examined couples in the throes of heated discussions, he learned that people fall into three categories. Those who digress into threats and name-calling, those who revert to silent fuming, and those who speak openly, honestly, and effectively. I wonder which one you are. (laughs) I know which one I am. After observing couples for hundreds of hours, Markman and his research partner Clifford Notorious sounds like notorious, notorious, predicted relationship outcomes and tracked their research subjects' relationships for the next decade. Remarkably, they predicted nearly 90% of the divorces that occurred. But more importantly, they found that helping couples learn to hold crucial conversations more effectively reduced the chance of unhappiness or breakup by more than half. What about you? Think of your own important relationships. Are there a few crucial conversations that you're currently avoiding or handling poorly? Do you walk away from some issues only to charge recklessly into others? Do you hold in ugly opinions only to have them tumble out as sarcastic remarks or cheap shots? When it matters the most, after, uh, after all, these are your cherished loved ones, are you on your worst behavior? If you definitely have something to gain by learning more about how to Sorry, if so, you definitely have something to gain by learning more about how to handle crucial conversations. I'm going to try and get to the end of this chapter. Boost your personal health. If the evidence so far isn't compelling enough, what would you say if we told you that the ability to master crucial conversations is a key to a healthier and longer life? Immune systems. Consider the groundbreaking research done by Dr. Janice Key. Uh, Keycold Glazer and Dr. Ronald Glazer. They studied the immune system of couples who have been married an average of 42 years by comparing those who argued constantly with those who resolved their differences effectively. It turns out that arguing for decades doesn't lessen the destructive blow of constant conflict. Quite the contrary, those who routinely failed their crucial conversations had far weaker immune systems and worse health than those who found a way to resolve them well life-threatening diseases. In perhaps the most revealing of all the health-related studies, a group of subjects who had contracted malignant melanoma received traditional treatment and then were divided into two groups. One group met weekly for only six weeks, the other did not. Facilitators taught the first group of recovering patients specific communication skills. After meeting only six times and then dispersing for five years, the subjects who learned how to express themselves effectively 
had a higher survival rate. Only 9% succumbed as opposed to almost 30% in the untrained group. That's incredible. Think about the implications of the study. Just a modest improvement in the ability to talk and connect with others corresponded to a two-thirds decrease in the death rate. This study is just one sample of how the way you talk or don't talk can dramatically affect your health. Mountains of research suggest that the negative feelings we hold in and the emotional pain we suffer as we stumble our way through unhealthy conversations slowly eat away at our health. In some cases, the impact of failed conversations leads to minor problems. In others, it results in disaster. In all cases, failed conversations never make us happier, healthier, or better off. So what about you? What are the specific conversations that gnaw at you the most? Which conversations, if you held them or improved them, would strengthen your immune system, help ward off disease, and increase your quality of life and well-being? Summary. What's a crucial conversation? When stakes are high, opinions vary, and emotions start to run strong, casual conversations transform into crucial ones. Ironically, the more crucial the conversation, the less likely we are to handle it well. When we fail a crucial conversation, Every aspect of our life can be affected, from our companies to our careers, to our communities, to our relationships, to our personal health. And the longer the time lag, the more room for mischief. Mischief. But there is good news. As we learn how to step up to crucial conversations and handle them well with one set of high leverage skills, we can influence virtually every domain of our lives. What is this all-important skill set? What do people who sell through crucial conversations actually do? More importantly, can we do it too? And that is chapter one. So if anybody, we've got about six minutes left. If anybody would like to raise their hand, come onto stage, ask a question, come up with a comment, uh, just add to this, um, please raise your hand um, right now and um, I will bring you up. Um, otherwise, um, I'll kind of summarize and, and, uh, and wind it down. If you are new here for the first time, um, we do this every morning, Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 a.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. And, um, and uh, we'll be doing another live book read uh, on Thursday for Obsessions of an Extraordinary Executive and back tomorrow. But uh, Catherine, welcome to the stage. Okay. Um, hi. Hi. Um, I wanted to mention transformative mediation, I was going to put it in the chat, is a very helpful format to um, allow mediation and like the U.S. Postal Service chose it as its method. And so that allows each person to have their feelings and beliefs factored in. Sometimes a mediation tries to say, you know, we're going to put everything aside except for, you know, what brought you here, arguing over the lunch hour or you know, some identifiable issue. But their premise is that, and again, it's um, The Promise of Mediation is one of the books that describes that transformative. Some people heard of How to Talk So Kids Can Listen books um, for, for parents and children to help them acknowledge what is their, the other person going through almost like you're watching a TV show and you have to name that situation. And then the person's released from being in that, you know, frenzy or concern 
it just eases the tension a little bit and they're a little more willing to listen to what you might want to say. But, you know, that block blockage of um, pathway of communication is important. Mm. It's another elephant in the room. <laughs> you know, the- there's a lot and you know you know when i when i'm coaching now um and i only became a a leadership coach uh, in earnest uh, in june of last year we actually have these little uh, toys that we use Uh, one is ironically elmo um by the way um and because elmo stands for enough let's move on and and then we've got a whole bunch of them for example we've got the elephant which represents the elephant in the room um, we've got the cow, as in no sacred cows. Um, we've got the bull, as in you know, as in bullshit, you know. But also, like you know, don't be a bully. Uh, we've got the squirrel, um, which of course uh, represents um, you know um, uh, tangents. I get squirreled a lot, and then there's uh, and then there's a horse beating a dead horse. Um, so those are just little elements that actually you know create. Um, I think they reduce the stakes a little bit too. Um, but, you know, obviously going through this today, you know, and realizing, um, you know, f- I mean, my takeaway, what, what was your biggest takeaway today? My, my biggest uh, takeaway was, um, was for sure uh, the lag, you know, the, the fact that these things, the longer that they go unaddressed, uh, the worse the situation Um what what was your number one takeaway today? Catherine? Well, I, I appreciated hearing that and it is worrisome, but I would say it only takes one person to change. Too many people say it takes two to change. Like, no, we really only have ourselves. We exist in a bubble. You know, we were born <laughs> in one body. And when we change our opinion, and my friends at heartriver.org, I'll put that in there too, we're touching on this. They said, when you bump into lo- people with a lower frequency, you know, they're often going to try to put their stuff on you or bring you down to their level. And the more you recognize it, it's almost like a- an adult with goodwill going out on the playground gr- and kids, you know, charging them and trying to knock them over. They're three years old. You don't take them seriously. You know, they want you to join their game. Maybe they're upset. They see you as a resource in a certain way. And I often, now not to toot a horn, but I, I've had a sense of having more stability. And some people say, if you just breathe slower than the other person, it'll kind of calm them, land their plane. Or there, there's a lot of work. Barbara Brennan says, you know, we have these energy fields. And some For people sure. Try- and, and Catherine, if I may just also jump in, because yeah. I see it's almost nine. Yeah. I think there are also, I mean, I think probably, I'm sure the book is going to reveal a lot. Um, but you know, there are crucial conversations certainly that may happen with narcissists and bullies and political, you know, those untouchables, right? But then there's just crucial conversations that happen with decent people where two, you know, where, where two, um, uh, decent people are turned into and become the worst versions, you know, of themselves. And, um, and, and then the other thing I'll say is, the, the issue is when emotions are involved, um, in, it, it's clear, right, that benign and innocuous statements, even ones with, with, um, that are well-intentioning, can actually become triggers or accelerants too, right? So if you tell someone to calm down, that might actually have the exact opposite effect and actually rile them up. Um, so, 
Um, I just want to say that, you know, to the rest of you in the room, I've been trying to do this while the rooms are smaller because we are going to build this into, into hundreds and thousands of people. I don't mean hundreds of thousands. I mean hundreds and even thousands of people that want to start their day off on the front foot, on the right foot. So April looks like Mohammed, Sierra, Vinay, Tiana, thank you for your emojis. Karen, uh, uh, no uh, camels, <laughs> Henry, Slick, Rose Gold, Vincent, Ruby, Kuhn, H., uh, Ar- Aradhya, uh, Ar- Aradhya, and of course, Catherine for coming onto stage today. I uh, appreciate you. Um, come back tomorrow. Thursday again is, is for Obsessions. Next Tuesday, we're back in Crucial Conversations. Uh, thank you for all the hearts. There are going to be days when I'm actually coaching or traveling, and, um, and, and I'll either communicate to you through um, Clubhouse, but the, again, Really try, if, if you are comfortable, go to discord.gg forward slash Alpha Collective and join Alpha Collective's Discord server because that way I can communicate to you. Um, but we're just going to keep this going. As I said, I, we may move to um, to three books. I'm loving this stuff. You know, I, like I realized, wait a second, can you imagine how many books we can get through together and never split the difference and all of these you know, leadership skills, you know, self-development, negotiation. Um, we can get all of this just completely, you know, we can crush this together in 2024. And there is zero cost to anyone. Uh, all I would ever ask of you um, is just to spread the word and tell a friend. Um, and and finally, last but not least, remember that um, if you go all the way to the top, I'll produce them again tomorrow, there are these things called POAPs. They're essentially a digital badge. They're almost like a medal. It's a way of proving that you were here today. Um, I haven't done it today. I'm actually just going to stop the recording. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.